I'm Daniel Bryant, co-host of the InfoQ podcast, news manager at InfoQ, and product architect at Dataware. And I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Kelsey Hightower, staff developer advocate at Google. Kelsey is one of the leading figures within the Kubernetes space, and I'm sure many of you have seen him at a conference, watched his tutorials online, or explored his GitHub repository. Kubernetes the hard way is still a favorite tutorial of mine. In this podcast, I was keen to explore why Kubernetes has become so popular and understand why it has now become the platform of platforms where we are seeing a rise in popularity for Kubernetes-based PaaS-like offerings such as OpenShift and Knative. On a related theme, I was also keen to get Kelsey's thoughts on the topic of event-driven architecture and to understand the benefits of using a Kubernetes-based platform like Knative or Google's cloud run to deploy and manage function-based applications. I've learned a lot from Kelsey over the years, and I know he's been influential in many people's careers. And so finally, I was keen to understand how he learns and also get his recommendations for learning and sharing knowledge within the Kubernetes community. Hi, Kelsey. Welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. I'm sure many of our listeners will know you from the conference scene or the live demo scene. But by way of an introduction, could you talk a little bit about sort of your recent career highlights and also what you're currently working on at Google? Yes, yeah, so I work at Google Cloud, so big cloud provider, really focused on this whole cloud native thing. So we brought you Kubernetes, all of these ideas around observability and tracing. So that's the root of it. I kind of work in the heart of open source, really helping our customers kind of adopt some of these ideas, tools, and practices. And my history just goes back as a long-term open source contributor and a person teaching other people everything I know. When you and I first met, I think it was at Software Circus in Amsterdam, there was a lot of competition at that time. It's probably three, four years ago now. There was Mesos, there was Docker Swarm, there was Kubernetes, HashiCorp Nomad. Why do you think Kubernetes has become somewhat of the orchestrator of choice? I think it's because of its extensibility, right? Kubernetes is, I would probably say, more complete in terms of its extension APIs. The number of people we have working on it, whether that's from Red Hat to CoreOS to Google to Microsoft Azure, all of these people are contributing to Kubernetes in a way that fits their customer needs. And we've done it in a very pragmatic way, like custom resource definitions, CNI plugins, the container runtime interface, all of these extension points really allow the existing ecosystem to adopt Kubernetes and do it in a first class way without necessarily convincing everyone to do it the exact same way. I see very interesting stuff going on with Google Anthos, kind of using Kubernetes as a fabric and then building special things with like CRDs on top. Is that definitely sort of the Google way forward, do you think? Yeah, so Anthos kind of represents people who want that commercial relationship with Google, right? Saying, hey, Kubernetes is great, but by itself, you got to add a little bit more to Kubernetes to make it a complete thing, right? For example, GKE has been wildly popular. And what makes GKE, so Google's container engine popular, is that we have a dedicated set of UIs, workflows for creating and managing the full lifecycle of a cluster. And those are things that you just don't find in the GitHub project, right? Because it doesn't make sense for it to live there. So lots of people have asked, we want GKE in other places. And in order to do that, we decided to create this new brand called Anthos. And that just brings you GKE in the other environments we plan to support. Gotcha. What's your opinion on the current developer experience with Kubernetes? You sort of mentioned their platform. Everyone kind of needs a platform. Do you think Kubernetes is where it's at with the DevX or does it need to evolve some way to make it easier? We got to make sure we understand where we're coming from, right? Because for a lot of people, their DevX experience has involved the command line, SSH, Puppet and Chef. So if you've been primarily using a command line where you copy things around or you're using Puppet or Ansible, where you're just kind of like running these Ansible playbooks and then watching them complete. And if there's an error, you go back and you resolve it. 
for those people, Kubernetes is probably considered a huge step up in terms of DevX, right? Because now instead of you crafting all of these scripts, infrastructure as code, just to get some things like a deployment done, now you're like kubectl apply. And just from that single command, you're going to get something highly available. You know, you get an automated scheduler, you get all of this metadata about what's running. So for a lot of people coming from that direction, I can see why people are really happy to feel like Kubernetes is the end game in terms of developer experience. Now, if you're coming from the other direction, maybe you have experience with Cloud Foundry or Heroku, now you may start asking, why is Kubernetes not more opinionated, right? Why is there so many ways to do this thing? And I think that's where you have to understand that the reason why Kubernetes is popular is because it doesn't force you down a single path of getting things done, and it supports way more workload types, right? Cron jobs, batch jobs, stateful workloads, and stateless workloads. So I think given that, most people would say, wow, I would love a little bit more opinion there, but I don't think they really want to give up all of their freedom. But for those that do want more of a pass-like feel, I think Kubernetes has become that platform for building platforms. So things like OpenShift are built on top. Knative is built on top. Cloud Run you know, has a layer that runs on top of Kubernetes. So I think now you can get any experience that you want without sacrificing the ability to do things that you haven't thought of yet. You mentioned like Heroku. I did a bunch of work on Heroku. I loved Heroku as a you know platform as a service experience. What do you think are the core components of a platform? Say, if you're building some stuff on Kubernetes, what do we need to layer on top for it to be usable from idea to code to observable value in production? Like if you're building a 12-factor application, right, the classic target point for Cloud Foundry and Heroku, then almost out of the box, Kubernetes is just going to give you a lot, right? So assuming you have access to a cluster, right? Either maybe you're using something like GKE or Fargate from Amazon or AKS from Azure. In those cases, you're going to get this cluster that is kind of managed for you. People kind of figure out most things. I'm not going to say there's zero operations to do, but a lot of it is taken care of for you. And at that point, you're left with this Kubernetes API. So then as a developer, your entry point is going to be create a container image and then describe how you want it to run. So if you're brand new to Kubernetes, it may take you a while to understand, hey, what 20 lines of YAML do I need to craft in order to tell Kubernetes exactly what I want? So I think for most people, you can actually move between, especially if you're using containers for Heroku or Cloud Foundry, ideally that container is going to be able to run in Kubernetes with very little to no modification. So it's more about understanding the declarative nature of Kubernetes and then make a go of it. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And with things like Cloud Run, for example, I've heard you say like serverless, function as a service, kind of could be the next evolution of platforms. Is that where you kind of see it going? Do you see Kubernetes evolving that way too? Like Knative, these kind of things? I think it's careful that you have to put into perspective. Like if you are building a serverless platform from the ground up, you don't probably want to start from zero, right? Why would you start with the Linux VM and rebuild all the functionality that Kubernetes has or Nomad has and it will probably take you more than six years because you won't have the contribution base to start from scratch. So if you start with Kubernetes, now you can kind of focus on the missing parts. What does your experience need to have? So if you want to build a functions as a service, then maybe you look at Knative that has a serving framework, meaning when a request comes in, you can scale a workload up just in time and then scale back down to zero. It has an eventing framework that allows you to define the various event types. So if you have any experience with things like Lambda, or Google Cloud Functions, you know that there's this idea that you can just create a function and then map events to it. So if you're going to build one of those yourself, 
you can use these components to build on top. Now, Cloud Run gets a bit interesting because it's in between. Where I think functions as a service really leans into this eventing nature, right? That everything will be called via events. The contracts are really strong and very opinionated. And a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from working that way. But that assumes that you can break down your workload into a set of functions. Whereas I think the majority of the world is probably at a place where they want to write in whatever programming language that suits them. They're probably okay because there's so many great HTTP frameworks out there, whether that's Ruby on Rails or the Go standard library, you can just kind of build any app you want. It can either handle one route or it can handle multiple routes like our classic monoliths do today. And Cloud Run is about taking that container and then managing it for you. And it gives you that kind of serverless paradigm, even though you have a little bit more responsibility than you would see it in classic function as a service platform. What do you think about Service Mesh? Because a lot of hype with Service Mesh. Obviously, Knative itself was kind of woven in with, with Istio when it first launched. Is the hype justified? What do you think the future of Service Mesh might be? Yeah, so when you hear the word Service Mesh alone, it can get really confusing because you may not be sure what people are talking about. But it's the functionality that people are after. Now, to be honest, my guess is you can probably get 90% of Service Mesh functionality from Nginx. Like just straight up, if you knew how Nginx worked, you can do things like TLS mutual auth. You can do a bit of observability. You can actually have custom service mesh-like features running in Lua scripts right inside of Nginx. In fact, many of these things that we would now classify as service meshes or these intelligent gateways are already built on top of Nginx. But I think one thing that was new in things like Envoy, for example. So when you hear service mesh, your brain tends to think about Envoy because they're typically coupled. And what Envoy does is it becomes the data plane with a very nice configuration language. So I can stream configuration to it. Envoy was designed with this idea in mind that there would be dynamic service discovery. Backends would come and go. And it offered a first-class API to manage all of that. So when you combine that with the data plane, you could do things now to say these two applications can talk to each other. And that's because we've been moving these sidecar proxies closer to the app. So in a standard Nginx config, we kind of put it on the edge and it was more like a load balancer. But now what we're doing is saying, what if we put one of these load balancer next to every application? And now you start to end up with this service mesh with a bunch of capabilities. So given all this new tech we've talked about, what do you think this learning experience is like for the later adopters arriving on the scene now? People in a real world business problems, they've perhaps got an existing tech stack they're working with, and they're having to learn all this new stuff. Do you think there's things we need to improve in the learning experience? So these fundamentals have been there for a very long time. The idea that an application needs to be packaged and deployed when it crashes, it needs to move to the new thing so it can actually continue running. These are principles that have been around for 20, 30 years. Same thing for networking, right? You want to route traffic. You may want to write traffic based on certain attributes, right? All German customers stay in Germany. These are principles and fundamentals. I think what's happening now it's easier to adopt these fundamentals than ever before. So if you didn't understand how Mutual TLS worked, and I told you that Envoy, a free open source project, has support for that out of the box. If you don't understand how a CA works, if I told you that Istio comes with a built-in CA that's a conflag away from using, now you're starting to see the floodgates open of opportunity and possibility. So it's not like it's a bunch of new stuff. It's just that we've made all of the existing stuff much easier to adopt. So now people feel like there's a flood of information coming at them, right? You can actually adopt these ideas without becoming an expert yourself. 
Do you think the challenges are more tech-focused or people-focused? Your whole life is people-focused, right? This has nothing to do with technology. Your whole life, you're a person first. And I think that's the hard part that people have trouble understanding. If you're a person first, then your whole life is going to be kind of seen through your own eyes. And depending on where you are, you're going to always have those people challenges confronting you. So depending on where you are in your personal life or your professional life, your challenges are going to be very unique to your situation. If you work at a place that fosters education and new learning, and you work with colleagues that are helpful and respectable, then you're going to be able to adopt technology, I think, in a more pragmatic and safe way versus being around a group of people who may not value those things. And then you're going to be pushing against the grain. So I'm one of these people who believe in sharing everything I know to the point where I hope that you're a better person. And in many ways, you can return the favor and teach me something new. And that kind of world, yeah, we can create that kind of world. And then the technology comes second. If I know I have a set of problems and I can effectively communicate my set of problems, and if I'm in the business of solving problems, then it's a matchmaking exercise from there. Does my solution solve your problem? And then you get into this listening dynamic, right? So that feedback loop of a community presenting problems and solving problems, that's how the whole thing fits together. Say if we were talking to a junior engineer, someone kind of coming into their career, just entering the coding and the cloud landscape, where do you think they should start the learning journey and perhaps how as well? Should they pick up a technology and play? Should they try and learn the fundamentals? Should they find mentors like you mentioned here? You know, what's the best strategy, do you think, someone new to this game? Yeah, so I can just maybe talk from personal experience. When I was new to the game, I was very respectful that everyone has to learn at some point. So everyone's starting from zero. Either they're starting from zero in a new thing. So even if they're an expert in one thing, they're starting from zero in some other thing. So I was okay with this idea that, you know what? I'm not the best or the expert in this area, and that's okay. I'm just going to start investing in myself. So if you think about this whole thing as an investment in yourself, everything that you do is a net improvement to your own personal value. Back in the day, I would probably say 15 years ago, I decided to learn at least one programming language, right? I think I actually started with Bash. And then from Bash, I progressed to Python. And I think if you just pick one tech stack that you may just gravitate to on your own, go buy the books, study at home, take your time, invest in yourself. And I think the other area to start is whatever they're using at your job, right? Don't fall into the trap with the fear of missing out like this other company is using X, we should be using it too. You can get the experience you need by really learning the stack that you have at your job. So if you're on PHP and MySQL and Apache, you can go super deep in each of those and retain 80% of the fundamentals to the next thing you learn. So I would say if you're new to the game, respect what's in front of you, take all the opportunity because I think the experience is probably more important than the specific technology that you're using. And if you respect it, then you'll level up much faster. What do you think about the role of mentors? I've really enjoyed the cloud native community, the Kubernetes community, because there is clear folks like yourself that stand out and look to mentor and look to help other people. I've also seen it challenging sometimes, particularly people who are more junior in their careers, sometimes uncomfortable with the notion of being mentored. Have you got any thoughts on that? Wow. So if you consider education an investment in yourself and you're willing to go buy the book and do it yourself, then you have to give a lot of credit to someone that's willing to invest in you by being a mentor, trying to accelerate the process, maybe give you a few things that they wish they would have had at your entry point into the game. So why would you deny someone willing to invest in you? Like this is part of the learning experience, right? If you've gone to school, whether it's elementary school, middle school, high school, you can consider those teachers your mentors in many ways. 
So that's just how humans work. I mean, we learn from each other. And if you want to block people out from teaching you, then I think that's just going to slow down the process. I mean, why not take advantage of something that is a net benefit to you? Yeah, well said, well said, Cassie. I mean, one again, coming back to this, like the cloud native and CNCF and, and Kubernetes communities, I think it genuinely is a fantastic community. How do we encourage the development of healthy communities? Have you got any thoughts around how, you know, someone starting or perhaps someone more seasoned, how can they make sure that these communities are as fun as like Kubernetes community is? This one's tricky because as much as I value the community, the community isn't your life. You know what I mean? Like the technology will let you down. Building these communities around technology is kind of weird in its own. I think it's kind of nice to have a common set of interests that brings people together. And I think that's good. But the big takeaway is that no matter how or what brings you together, you still need to be a good person, right? So as an individual, like just be a good person. Like you don't have to be an asshole. You don't have to be those things. If you're having a bad day, maybe don't show up, right? You don't need to bring that negative energy into the gathering. And this is just true for all walks of life. So to be a good community, then you have to have some leadership. I think all communities have some form of leadership. Me personally, I think some people consider me as one of the leaders in the Kubernetes community. And I try to just have good behavior. I try to make myself available time-wise. I try to help various people out in many ways, whether that's through education and tutorials or just giving them feedback on the career. Or when I see the wrong behavior, calling the wrong behavior out and doing it in the way that's respectable to the person that's engaged in the wrong behavior. And overall, trying to make sure that the community has at least one star to look at and say, hey, this is how we should act and treat each other. And I think that's kind of the key for a good community. But again, the community isn't your identity, right? So don't go get tattoos of Kubernetes all over your body. You know what I mean? I think there's a healthy balance here. <laughs> so people first, and then people come together to form these communities. And when we show up, let's treat each other the right way. Yeah, well said, Kelsey. Switching back to the tech a little bit now, what do you think is the biggest challenge for Kubernetes over the next year from a technical point? I think Kubernetes did a good job of attempting to define its identity. What does core look like? And I think the best thing we've been doing over the years, and you've seen this, we started moving more and more things out of the core. We've moved the client libraries out of the core. We moved all the cloud provider integrations out of the core. And that means the core, in many ways, is getting a little bit smaller over time and really focusing on the core things like RBAC, operating system support, pluggable APIs for various container runtimes. So instead of having container runtimes built into the core, we're starting to move that out into the container runtime interface. Same is true for networking and storage. So now that we kind of have a very clean core, I think the challenge will be to preserve the core and be comfortable with an ecosystem evolving around Kubernetes. So serverless is very hot. Let's not bake that into the core. Let's have projects like Kdenative. Service mesh is hot. Let's not bake that into the core. Let's have projects like Istio. So I think it's okay to allow it to evolve. And I think that's going to be the key. And as our ecosystem gets bigger, new vendors show up with different expectations. We're going to have to make sure they understand that, hey, use the extension APIs and let's not you know, overdo what's inside of core. I like it. I like it. Something that reminded me, you were speaking there, I was chatting to Brian Lyles on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he mentioned, as he did also in KubeCon, around Kubernetes needing its Rails moment, which I thought was quite a powerful meme. I like that a lot. How do you think that works to what you've just said? Because we have a clean core. The special thing with Rails was it was convention over configuration. It made my life as a developer super easy. How does that weave into this kind of keeping the core kind of clean? Because you need a bunch of other stuff around it too. 
Well, so you'll see the world, the distros start to rise, right? So everyone's going to have their flavor of Kubernetes that has a few add-ons to give people what they feel their Rails moment will feel like. But the truth is you're going to end up having not just Rails, you're going to have React, you're going to have people that want to do machine learning, you're going to have people that just want to do everything that the experience will be radically different for all of them. So in many ways, Kubernetes will just start to disappear even more over time to the point where maybe we don't talk about Kubernetes as much. And that's going to be okay, just like Linux, right? Linux is very fundamental to everything that we're doing now, but not many people run around talking about Linux as much as we used to. So I think the future of Kubernetes is it disappears quite a bit. I like it. You mentioned about machine learning there. What's your thoughts on Kubernetes and machine learning? Do you see them as a partner going forward or, or will it be machine learning more based as a service from cloud providers? Yeah, so I guess in the platform for building platforms regard, Kubeflow is attempting to take TensorFlow and the various things people use for building these ML workflows and layering that on top of Kubernetes so they can focus on that part of the experience. And I think that will continue because you need a distributed system underneath and what better one than Kubernetes with all of its great extension points. The other part of machine learning that I think is going to help Kubernetes is this idea that since Kubernetes produces such rich data and for most machine learning activities, you kind of need data in order to build these models. And right now we kind of do a lot of things via brute force, but imagine a world where we start to have enough data coming out of these systems that we can have more intelligent models around scheduling predictive auto-scaling based on the data that's being generated already from Kubernetes. So I can expect in the future, we'll see these ML models being roped into the scheduler, roped into some of the capacity planning. And you'll start to feel like, wow, this Kubernetes thing is way more powerful than I expect out of the box. What are your personal goals for 2020? What are you looking forward to working on this year? In 2020, I really want to hammer out this idea around configuration as data. Right, coming from the community of configuration as code, where we all wrote if statements, else logic, and we put that on the front end to describe our infrastructure. And I think there's a very powerful notion to be able to write code to make things happen. But on the flip side, the tools aren't interchangeable in that world. If you pick a particular programming language to do this in, you're kind of locked into that ecosystem, and it's hard to interchange the tools. In the Kubernetes world, or at least what I'm learning from the Kubernetes world, is that when you force yourself to only have a data model, some people call this YAML files, and you force all the logic into the control loops, you really end up with a set of discipline that says the entire config is always data and any tool above it. And it's okay to have Terraform and Ansible or Chef above that, but they should all generate the data. And if they generate the data, then we can actually have data pipelines. So now we can do things like static analysis without parsing a whole syntax tree. We can actually start to do things like a mission controller. We're going to apply policies to this data. And what that means is now we can start to have interchangeable tools that we can always add at any point in the process without worrying about our existing investment. So I think that's going to be a very powerful concept that I hope to further in 2020. Nice. Will that be part of your Google work or open sourced or on the keynote stage? What are you thinking? Yeah, I think it's just in general, right? So I think a lot of times my life makes its way into open source. It's a thing we've been doing at Google and encourage a lot of people to go in that direction. So you'll see Google Cloud already doing this. So a lot of stuff that we have, we have what we call the Kubernetes config connector. And the idea there is that you can actually give us a Kubernetes object, aka CRD, to create a Cloud SQL database, to create a load balancer. So even things that are not traditionally seen as a Kubernetes resource, we're now starting to take the existing 
Google Cloud resources and giving them their dedicated Kubernetes object equivalent. So where people were using Terraform before, I still think that's a valid path. But we also want to make it very easy for all of those tools just to create the right data model. And then we can actually manage those resources for them in the background. So that's happening at Google. And again, just throughout the community, just getting this idea, testing it, and making sure people understand it. Have you bumped into Crossplane? Yeah, I knew when they were getting off the ground. So I met the founder, you know, last year. And I think they kind of understand this as well. So once you start to have a data model across all resource types, then you can start to think about the world totally different. Now you can do things like say, hey, if we assume that we can describe the infrastructure using data, now you can start to build tools like Crossplane that didn't really think about a federated set of Kubernetes edges and the supporting resources such as databases and CDNs all describe using the same configuration language. And that's where the power of Crossplane comes in. So final couple of questions, Kelsey. If you could send a message back in time, what would be the most important piece of advice you could give to a 20-year-old Kelsey? 20-year-old Kelsey, I would tell him, you know, this whole idea of being debt-free and financial independence is the right one, right? You're making a good decision there because it's going to allow you to really focus on the things you want to without necessarily working for a specific dollar amount. And I think that is going to be the key to your success. And public speaking is more powerful than you know. That ability to do public speaking works both externally and internally. And throughout my career, I have been in engineering management. I've been a team lead. I've been an individual contributor. And the thing that I found the most value is being able to inspire people into action. And when people feel motivated and inspired, they tend to do their very best work, even more than you could ever ask or demand of them. Excellent. Excellent, Kelsey. So if people do want to follow your work online, what's the best way? Twitter, GitHub? Twitter is where I spend a lot of my time in terms of sharing all the work that I'm doing. And also on GitHub, I try to produce all the tutorials and libraries that I use in my daily work. Thanks so much for your time, Kelsey. Appreciate it. Awesome. Was happy to be here.